We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. So the LA Rams will be the number two seed. They finish 13 and 3, a 13 win season for the third time in franchise history. I've been dreaming this my whole life. And so have you. Yeah. It's time to put in the work. Yeah. Every man go dominate. Offense, defense, special team. Let's go. What are we talking about? Greg Zerline sends the Rams to the Super Bowl. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is Derek C. Paul for the Midweek Podcast here for the tour around the league. It lands in Seattle, Atlanta. Glad to have you on board checking it out. We're going to be visiting with Aaron Freeman from Locked On Falcons and, and Falcon Radio, Falcon Central, that is. And then also Seahawks, maybe Ms. Corbin Smith, one of our regulars will be showing up as well. We're going to look at the Atlanta Falcons and the Seattle Seahawks. I'm looking forward to it. But first, before we even get into the tour, 
We do remind you this episode is sponsored by Jim Hawkins, McCall's team. We also want you to know that we're available anywhere podcasts can be found, including Spotify, SoundCloud, and Spreaker. You can find our podcasts also list with Clutch Points. They feature an awesome app that puts loads of NBA and NFL information at your fingertips. Check them out at clutchpoints.com or download the app. Also, we have, yet again, a iTunes contest, a five-star review. Check it out. We need new subscribers. We always want you to you know, give us feedback as well. Once we get the 200 five-star reviews, one lucky winner will get a $75 gift certificate to NFLshop.com. This is how it works. Head over to iTunes. Leave a five-star review and send us an email. RandallsTop1945 at gmail.com with a copy of your entry so we know who to reward. We also will read your feedback on the air. By the way, we really got some nice feedback on the interview with Roger Brown. The, um, the former Los Angeles Rams defensive lineman who is, a co- of course, a member of the Fearsome Force. I mean, was a really great guy. I, it touched my heart interviewing him. And so if you haven't gotten a chance yet to go check out that interview, go do it. It's in our most recent podcast. Also, check out Rams Uncensored. Those guys are bananas. I'm not going to lie, man. And, of course, Butting Heads. But... That's neither here nor there. We want to get you right into the conversation. Here is our interview with Locked On Falcons, Aaron Freeman. Check it out. All right, folks, I'm here with Aaron Freeman, host of Locked On Falcons and Falcon Central Radio. Aaron, it's been a while. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm sorry. I'm doing good. Doing good. Well, I'll get right into it. I have to ask, it's a little painful, but what what went wrong for the Falcons last season? We expect them to compete for a playoff spot, and instead they go 7-9 and finish six games behind those Saints. What went wrong? Well, you know, the, the easy answer is to say injuries were a problem. They had a lot of key injuries at the start of the season with Devontae Freeman and Keanu Neal and Deion Jones and Ricardo Allen, you know, four players that were, you know, among their best players uh, on the roster and losing those guys sort of led to the slow start. They started off one and four, but then they seemed to get things back on track, rattling off three wins going into the bye week. And it seemed like they were going to turn around their season. You know, they were, I guess, competing with the Colts for the, the biggest turnaround of the year going, you know, potentially. And then sort of coming out of the bye, they lost five straight games. And that's really sort of where the season made a turn for the worse. And, Early in the season, their biggest struggle was their offense was playing at a high level, but their defense really couldn't get any stops. And then after the bye, their offense really went into the tank. And then you couple that with a defense that's still not getting any stops. You know, that's going to lead to a lot of losses. And that's really really sort of what cost them their season. And so, you know, they sort of limped their way to a 7-9 and record. So I, I this is an honest question for a guy just kind of on the outside looking in, but the Falcons have always been a team that kind of they they frustrate me a little bit as a football fan because they'll have a run of a couple seasons, they'll look great, they'll be a contender, then they'll fall off the wagon, then they'll come back and they'll look great, they'll be a contender, then all of a sudden they'll they'll come back down to the six and nine, seven and ten season, sorry, seven and ten, whatever, six and ten or seven and nine season, and <laughs> you know. They're one of those franchises that never seems to be able to be consistent down the line. Why is that? What is going on with this franchise that can't seem to go over the hump? 
I look, if I knew the answer to that, I probably wouldn't be spending my time tweeting and podcasting and writing about them. I'd be making millions of dollars because the Falcons would have hired me to fix their problems. But <laughs> I don't know what the answer is because you're you're absolutely right. It you know, for a long time this was a, a franchise that had never had back to back winning seasons. We're just a decade removed from when that streak ended and this was a franchise that you know started off in the 60s. And, you know, really since then, they had, they've been able in the last decade to put together some winning seasons, but it's never been sustaining. It's never been more than maybe like three years in a row. It's never been, you know, two years in a row. And then they have a letdown season. And it's, it's very frustrating because they have the pieces to be a consistent team. Um, but I think, you know, maybe one argument someone would make today is too much of their ability is is tied up in these skill position players and they still have this sort of vulnerability when it comes to the trenches the falcons have never been a team known to to go out there and and smack other teams in the mouths and be this physical football team at least you know not consistently so and that makes them probably a little bit more vulnerable um, because you see time and time again in this league where some of the better teams are going to be these sort of physical teams that are going to be these you know top five top 10 defenses, you know, with, you know, that can, you know, run the football and, and do all the things and whatnot. And I think the Falcons are trying to make efforts to fix that problem, which has been lingering. You know, I guess, I guess all that to say is the biggest knock on the Falcons has been that they're too much of a finesse team. And that's kind of played them, you know, throughout the various coaching tenures dating back years and years. Okay, so I'm a little confused then. So I'm going to go back a little bit, not to this past season, but the season before. He had a, a really solid nose tackle by the name of Dontari Poe. And the Falcons let him go. I mean, as far as I remember, he did some damage for you guys, especially against the Rams, for that matter. Why let a guy like that who is gritty and physical leave when you need that kind of help in the trenches? Yeah, that was a that was a question mark. And the the issue with Poe was they got him on sort of a bargain on a one year contract. Um, and basically, Poe was looking for a long term, you know, contract that had a lot of guaranteed money. And the Falcons really weren't interested in paying him that type of money. Uh, Carolina wound up doing so this past season. And, and, you know, I guess one way you could say vindicates the Falcons to a certain extent, Poe did not have a, a great season in Carolina in the first year in that contract. But it is one of those things where even if you're willing to let Don Terry Poe go, you do need to have to replace that player in your roster. And the Falcons really didn't do a good job. Like the only player that they really brought in to potentially do that was a rookie by the name of Deidre Snot in the third round. And while Deidre Snot's a good player and looks like he's going to be a solid piece of the Falcons rotation, he's not on nearly to the par of, player that a guy like Don Terry Poe, who's a multi-pro bowler and, and a, the type of guy that would potentially get this massive contract on the open market. So shifting to the, to the skill position players, how do the Falcons view Matt Ryan and, and Julio Jones at this point in their careers, and how much longer can the Falcons count on them to perform at their peak? That's a good question, uh, or at least the, the second question you asked, how much longer can these guys play? I think, you know, the question to your first question is the Falcons are all in on both of these guys as of now with Matt Ryan. You know, the hope is, you know, given that we've seen some of these other quarterbacks like the Drew Brees and Peyton Manning and, and Tom Brady 
play well into their late 30s and, and potentially into their 40s, you know, with Matt Ryan being 33 this year, I think the hope for the Falcons is that you get another five to seven years of Matt Ryan playing at a high level. Now, the real issue to allowing him to do that is to protect him. And that when I'm sure we'll get to that conversation a little bit later with, you know, that sort of facilitates some of what the Falcons did in the draft this year um, with Julio Jones. He's due for a contract extension this summer. There's talk that that could be, you know, coming in the next month or two uh, before training camp starts. And really that contract is probably going to be structured in a similar way to what we saw with Antonio Brown got from Oakland this year, where they're basically just guaranteeing the next three years of Julio Jones. And that should basically bridge the gap between today and, and when sort of we expect to sort of see Julio maybe start to lose it a little bit. And at that point in time, you're going to have a, you know, potentially a young Calvin Ridley sort of, you know, maturing and, and potentially sort of taking the mantle as sort of the Falcons go to option at that point, you know, the three, four years down the road. So, um, you know, I think the Falcons are, are happy with their two superstars and hoping that by keeping those guys healthy and happy over the next couple of years, you're going to get another couple of bites at the apple in terms of uh, trying to compete for championships. And the Falcons are also pretty active in free agency, especially in offensive line help, getting Jamon Brown and you know some other help as well. How do you rate their offseason moves uh, this past spring? Well, I probably should be asking you a little bit more about Jamon Brown, shouldn't I? You know, I I looked at those moves. They signed Jamon Brown. They signed James Carpenter. They re-signed Ty Sambrello. He winds up replacing right tackle Ryan Schrader, who was another player that had a, a down. Uh, 2018 season and wound up getting cut after the season after several seasons of really solid to good play at that right tackle position sort of as the Falcons answer to address one of the the major issues that they faced in 2018 which was poor offensive line play they also had a couple of injuries on that offensive line although I don't think like it is with other areas of the roster the injuries were an excuse for the the poor play. Just even the starters weren't that good, so it wasn't as if there was this huge drop off from the starters to the backups. Um, it's one of those things where I feel like Carpenter, I feel like Jamon Brown are kind of band aids, and and Sam Brayla even more so are, are sort of band aid solutions. And so I, I felt like the Falcons were at least addressing the issue, but I don't know if they were really fixing the issue, which led to them sort of investing even more in the offensive line in this past weekend's draft. Well, I will say this about Jamon Brown. Jamon Brown didn't get a fair deal in Los Angeles, and it wasn't really the current staff's fault. Jeff Fisher's staff did a horrible job developing linemen while they were there, and that was part of the reason when they were 4-12 and 12 on the last year under Fisher. And so Brown is strong. He is immensely physical. He could be... To me, he could be an easy starter in this league. The problem with him is he's never been consistent. And I think what would raise alarm bells is Aaron Cromer, the current Rams offensive line coach, who's done wonders with some of the offensive linemen the Rams have, gave up on him. The team let him go. And that should raise, I think, some warning bells on him and, and the ability of your staff there in Atlanta to be able to coach him up. I don't know if they can. If they can... He has all the tools, in my opinion, to at least be a serviceable starter, if not a very good starter. It's just, what can they get out of him consistently? That was, that was his problem in Los Angeles. Was he, just, he just was never consistent. Okay, I'll take that in mind. So, I mean, 
I, you may have gotten a gem in him, quite frankly. You may I've have. heard some people say that, and I've been a little skeptical watching, you know, what he did in New York, watching what he did in L.A., but, you know, it, you may be right in, in terms of sort of maybe the product on the field wasn't necessarily what his – he hasn't – you know, he's only scratching – the surface of his full potential there. It is, yeah, it's really about, it's really him. He has to make up his mind at that point, and he has to be coachable. And there were times, you know, again, I go back to Cromer. Cromer's one of the best in the league on, as an offensive line coach, and he was not quite able to get to him. So, you know, the Falcons have a task, but they can get that task with him. You have a gem on your hands. You really do. And I'm, I was almost tempted to hope the Rams would go back and get him this offseason, but they didn't go after him. So... You know, in terms of the the rest of what the Falcons did in the offseason, mainly I'm pointing here towards the draft. How did you grade the Falcons' draft this year, and what were their biggest swings and hits and swings and misses? Well, you know, the draft was interesting because all offseason, really, for like the last month leading up to the draft, after free agency, there were so many rumors about the Falcons being very interested in, in trading up for Ed Oliver and every, you know, various insiders, various whatever were talking about sort of, you know, this being an open secret that the Falcons were going to try to jump up and get Ed Oliver if he fell to a certain point in the draft. And for most people, that was pick number eight where Detroit was picking. And that happened on Thursday night. And then the Falcons didn't trade up. And then Oliver wound up getting picked the very next pick by Buffalo. And, you know, what was interesting about that, for me at least, because I never really bought into that whole, you know, narrative, that whole, I thought it was more of a smokescreen. It's not to say that the Falcons weren't interested in it, Oliver. I just felt like they had some other areas of their roster they still wanted to address, namely that offensive line. And so they stood put, stand put, uh, they stayed put at pick 14 and wound up taking, you know, arguably the best guard in this draft class in Boston College's Chris Lindstrom even after signing guys like Carpenter and Jamon Brown, who presumably were going to be penciled in at the left guard and right guard spot. And now they bring in a guy like Lindstrom. And there was a sort of a mixed opinion about Lindstrom, who everybody looks at as, yes, he's a good player. Maybe he was taken a couple spots too early uh, in some people's eyes. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but it was one of those things where, people thought, well, the Falcons have already addressed this position. Wouldn't it make more sense to go after something else, another position that is a bigger need right now, like on the defensive line, getting a pass rusher, getting a defensive tackle or somebody like that? And I just thought of it, and I was like, well, yes, the Falcons do need to upgrade their pass rush. They do need to beef up their defensive line. But I have a little bit more confidence in what the Falcons currently have on on those on that side of the ball, on the defensive side of the ball, than what they currently have on the offensive side of the ball. Because I feel like coming out of the season, one of the things that head coach Dan Quinn said was there were three question marks on the offensive line. The, the only two positions that weren't question marks were the left tackle, Jake Matthews, and center, Alex Mack. And I felt like even though the Falcons had signed several players, they still had three question marks on the offensive line because I don't feel like looking at James Carpenter and Javon Brown and Ty Sambrello, you've answered those questions. So I think when they went and got Lindstrom and then they traded back into the first round to pick up Washington offensive tackle Caleb McGarry, I felt like even though putting, you know, throwing rookies offensive linemen to the Wolves is not necessarily a great strategy to get ideally high offensive line play, it is one of those things that those two guys at least answer two of those question marks where we know, okay, 
Lindstrom's going to be one of the guards of the future. McGarry's going to be one of the, the the right tackle of the future. And so whether those guys struggle early in their career, one hopes that eventually you'll develop them into two solid foundation pieces of your offensive line. So you really only have one question mark left on your offensive line to answer, which you know you can potentially answer next offseason or, or down the road or whatever the case may be. So I think the Falcons were able to do a great job upgrading their offensive line in this year's draft with those top two selections. What they didn't do was address their defensive line. They wound up taking a, a project in John Kaminsky in the fourth round out of University of Charleston. Kaminsky was one of those guys that was a great athlete, shows great athleticism for his size, was was productive on the Division two level, but was a very raw player, and that showed off at the Senior Bowl. But it, reportedly, the Falcons really just fell in love with his personality and sort of his work ethic and all these sort of things. So they're going to try to develop him, even if he is considered a project. They feel pretty confident that they can you know, eventually develop him into a difference maker. But he's probably not going to be contributing a whole lot this season. So it feels like the Falcons basically went all in on upgrading their offensive line, which I think makes perfect sense because – Ultimately, their bread is buttered on the offensive side of the ball. They're not a team that's going to play shut down defense. They're a team that's going to outscore their opponents. And having a solid offensive line and stabilizing that unit, I think, takes priority over trying to buoy up a um, what is essentially going to be a middling defense that has some you know impressive players. But for the most part, in Dan Quinn's tenure here, has been average at best for the most year. And hopefully the hope is with Dan Quinn sort of taking over the play calling on the defensive side of the ball after firing uh, defensive coordinator Marquand Manuel, which is something that Dan Quinn did down the stretch in 2016 when the Falcons went to the Super Bowl, is that he will be able to get more out of that unit than what they have seen in, in recent years. So that instead of just being an average to below average unit that they've been for the most part, they can be an above average unit and you couple that with an offense that's, you know, a little bit more consistent under new offensive coordinator or should I say old offensive coordinator now new again, Dirk Cutter, you can have a team that can get back into sort of competing at the top levels of the NFC. So there's another name there in the draft that kind of raised my eyebrow a little bit. And that's fourth round Kendall Sheffield. What are they expecting out of him? Yeah, I think the Falcons, you know, they cut Robert Alford this offseason. Uh, he wound up in Arizona. And they let Brian Poole go as well, and he's now with the Jets. And Alford was sort of the number two cornerback opposite Desmond Trufant, and Poole was their nickel guy uh, for the last couple of years. He was an undrafted free agent out of Florida. And I thought Poole was solid, um, but, you know, there was kind of a ceiling on how good he could be. Um, and I think sort of like the Falcons felt that they could get better at both of those spots with Alford, particularly his play dropping off significantly this past year. He was dealing with an ankle injury that sort of limited through the middle portion of the season. And when Isaiah Oliver, who was their second round pick in 2018, came in for a few instances, he had some ups and downs, but his ups, you know, he showed a lot of ability to sort of break up passes with his long arms and whatnot. And so I think the Falcons are optimistic and excited about his potential to be sort of this disruptive presence, this big, long sort of press corner opposite Trufant that can handle some of the bigger wide receivers that they face, particularly in the division where you have guys like Mike Evans and Michael Thomas that they have to match up with. And that really was uh, one area where Trufant, even when he was at his best, still tended to struggle covering you know some of these elite receivers, particularly those with size like those two. Um, 
and I think the Falcons feel like those guys, and, and then they, to replace Poole, they're moving uh, DeMonte Casey, who was the backup who filled in for Ricardo Allen at the free safety spot and was tied for the league lead last year with seven interceptions. They're moving him into more of a slot cornerback, which was more of the role that he played in college before the Falcons converted him to a safety. And so what the Falcons basically needed, long story short, to get to Sheffield, they needed to find a depth guy in a guy like Sheffield who brings both speed, but also has the versatility to play both inside and outside just because the Falcons' depth after getting rid of Poole, after getting rid of Alford, was very thin at that cornerback position because essentially they're promoting their top two backups to starting roles this year in Casey and Oliver. And so Sheffield brings a lot to the table in the sense of he has the versatility to be a backup both on the outside and inside. He has the speed that n- not necessarily the Falcons really have at that cornerback position because Oliver's more of a – uh, specialistic in size and while Trufant has speed you know he's getting up there in age and he's not as fast as he was when he came out in the league you know six years ago so having a guy that can handle speed like we'll face with the Rams this year uh, with the fast receivers like Brandon Cooks and whatnot that the Rams have you know was important so you know the, the knock on Sheffield is that he's a little bit more of a developmental guy great athlete but didn't necessarily reach the heights that you want to see and I think the Falcons are optimistic that they can develop him relatively quickly to make him into a, a valuable role player in the near future and potentially a starter down the road. That's an understatement in terms of developmental. He's raw. He is raw. Watched him play a lot. That's actually why I asked about him because I was surprised the Falcons took him. He was out of position so much in the Ohio State defensive backfield that it was frustrating to watch him. And so I was really interested in seeing what the plan is for the Falcons and Sheffield because he's not going to, there's no way they could rely on him for at least a year, if not two. This determines the development he needs. I'm, I'm dead serious on that. Watched every, every one of the snaps this year. It's, I, I, be, I would be concerned about that pick. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. I'll be honest with you. I've only seen a couple of games from Sheffield. I saw things to like more so than things to not to like, but I, I'm sure as I dig deeper into the film, I might see a little bit more of those red flags that you're referring to. Oh, his speed is just off the chain. It's just that, you know, in critical moments, I mean, I, I watched every Ohio State snap this year. I'm, I'm an Ohio State guy. And um, just in terms of where, when he gets caught off balance, he's not just caught off balance or caught in a bad position. He's caught in a horrible position. And then he'll make up for it with an interference call or so on and so forth, just like any other cornerback would. So he was a, a really frustrating guy to watch. And it blew my mind when he declared for the draft. I'm thinking, dude, you need to stay. You're not ready yet. But he, he declared. And so I would be really wary of him. I really would be. Well, I think the Falcons' plan is ideally he won't see much action outside of special teams this year, mm-hmm. assuming Oliver, Casey, and Trufant uh, you know, can stay healthy, but that was an issue the, this past season where guys didn't stay healthy. So um, I think the Falcons are hoping that they can sort of, you know, utilize that speed in certain matchups um, and, and sort of keep him, you know, I, I think the Falcons are maybe hoping that they can get him to perform at a level similar to a what Dante Jackson yeah. did with the uh, Panthers last season. So what is your overall outlook now for the Falcons in 2019? Where do you think they stand in the NFC South, and what's their, you know, right now on paper, what's their peak win total? I feel like this team, you know, if, if I'm not necessarily looking focused on the schedule, 
I feel like this is like a 10 win team. I feel like you, you couple what should be, what has the potential to be, what can be a top five offense coupled with a defense that may just be, you know, slightly above league average, you know, somewhere in that 12 to 18 range in terms of their ranking. I feel like that's a team that's a 10 win team. That's a team that should be in the playoffs. I think the difficult thing with the Falcons is their schedule is not going to make that margin for error, um, you know, favor them in a lot of ways where, you know, they start off the season against some tough opponents. They get the Rams in that first half of the season. Then they get a bye week um, where they're uh, basically got five straight divisional games, which, you know, everybody knows that divisional games are some of the closest, toughest games, and that can wear down a team pretty quickly. And so, you know, they start the season off against Minnesota on the road and then Philadelphia and Minnesota and Philadelphia. And it goes back to what I was talking about earlier with sort of the, Falcons being labeled too much of a finesse team. Minnesota and Philadelphia have been two teams that the Falcons have struggled with over the years in recent seasons because the, those teams have been been able to sort of impose their will on them. Um, and so, you know, those are arguably the two biggest and toughest defensive matches that the Falcons offense is going to face this season. And to get those two teams in the first two games of the season means the Falcons kind of have to get the ground, you know, hit the ground running this season offensively under Dirk Cutter. And so this is what I'm talking about with the margin for errors is, is very thin for the Falcons. So I feel like they're a 10 win team. I certainly think they're capable of doing the things. If, you know, the coaching is there, if the health is there, if the, you know, if all the things, you know, hit, they can certainly be a team that can win 10 or 11 games this season. But I think there's also, you know, if things start to go awry, you could see this team sort of struggle and limp their way to a 500 season. And it won't be because they weren't capable of winning more. It was just, you know, things just didn't necessarily, you know, um, go in their direction. All right. So here's my last question for you, Aaron. What did you make of that Game of Thrones schedule release? Uh, I loved it. I loved every single second of it. <laughs> I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And initially, oh, I saw it, and I in the, the first few seconds, I was like, "Oh, they're doing a Game of Thrones thing. That's cool." And so I didn't catch the whole Saints Rams thing until a little bit later um, because I didn't watch it all the way through because I was more interested in seeing like what the actual schedule was, you know. Mm-hmm. And so then when I finally caught that, I was like, "Oh my god!" And I, you know, I did the chef's kiss, and it was just <laughs> magnificent. <laughs> To uh, troll the Saints, as uh, you know, the Falcons. You know, the Falcons. We got a lot of grief for the twenty-eight to three thing. We still get a lot mm-hmm. of grief for twenty-eight to three. I mean, you even got Game of Thrones references from last night, where people were still referencing twenty-eight to three in, in their memes and whatnot. So, you know, the Falcons are going to continue to give the Saints as much grief as possible to return the favor. And I just thought it was brilliant, and you know, the fact that you know the rest of the world thought it was brilliant, I, it even makes it even better. I you know I cannot tell you how many different discussions we've had to endure with bitter Saints fans over that game, and so for me to get to watch that, I was just like that was so perfect, that was so perfect. When everybody else realized you guys are behaving like idiots, it's pretty good. <laughs> so I mean, I just could not believe the the rea- I I actually used to have a really big amount of respect for Saints fans overall and just the re- the reaction to that loss totally you know tainted that view just the behavior afterwards 
Well, now you're on the same page with Falcon fans because we we've had that lack of respect for Saints fans for many years, many decades. So well, it was now just, everybody else, yeah, you couldn't accept it. It's like you, yes, it was a blow call, but you still had a chance to win the game. You didn't win the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there are no shed tears in the state of Georgia. I can promise you that. <laughs> the outcome that game. All right, Aaron. Can you tell people where they can find you? They can find me on Twitter. I'm at Falcfans, uh, also the host of the Locked On Falcons podcast, which you can find on any podcast platform there is. We do a daily podcast there. I also am the co-host of another Falcons podcast called Falcon Central Radio, and you can find all the details of that on ProFootballCentral.com. All right. Well, hey, Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time out tonight. It's getting a little bit later, and uh, you know, looking forward to having a big game this year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully we get a, a, another chance to talk. All right, we'll, we'll talk then. Take care now. All right, you too. All right, thank you. Bye. All right, I really like having Aaron on the show. He always brings good insight, very interesting. And, of course, who could not, who could not love the Game of Thrones-themed unveiling of the Falcon schedule? That was outstanding. Okay, before we move on. Most of us are practically addicted to anything Los Angeles Rams. Well, if you want to learn more about the Rams' history with a, bir- with, a, geez, with a bit of personal touch, check out Jim Hawk's book, Harlow's Team, Great Glamour, the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. The book tells the story of, of the 1950s Rams through the lens of Jim's dad, John, who was an offensive lineman for the team from 1953 to 1957. Check out a son's story of his father and the team he played for in an era of glitz, glamour, and future Hall of Famers. Read about players like Norman Van Brocklin, Elway, Crazy Hurst. Tom Frisch and Les Richter in this story spend the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. You can find Hawk's book online at hollywoodsteam.com and on Twitter at hollywoodsteam. It's available on hardback electronic form. And, by the way, it'll be on paperback this September 6th. Folks, I've read it cover to cover. It's a great book. It's really a good look at Rams history. We're starting to see more and more works about the Rams come out. But if you want to look at the 50s Rams and how they became that Hollywood team check it out okay and by the way all proceeds go to homeboy industries which is a a organization that works to get people out of the gang life and making them pro- productive members of society it's a really good cause i would like actually we'll put the call out now if you've read the book do us a favor head on over to amazon and put a review in for it and also let us know you did it it'd be a great opportunity to let jim know about the work he's done and whether or not you really like the book okay so that's my call out to him asking you please go ahead and do that just so we know that you know his book's being read okay so without further ado we sat down with seahawk mavens corbin smith he's a regular on our show always good to have a well a look at our rivals, our divisional rivals, and something he and I agree on is it looks like the Seahawks are starting to close the gap between us and the you know us and them, the Rams and Seahawks. And this whole interview will tell you why. So, all that said, have a look, check it out. Here's Corbin Smith from Seahawk Maven. Okay, folks, I'm here with Corbin Smith from Seahawks Maven. Well, a long time, or ever since he was Legion of 12, and now he's moving on, doing different things. Corbin, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's a wonderful day full of joy and cheer, even though it's Monday. It's almost my last Monday teaching, so, you know, just one more <laughs> week to go, and I'm good to go. I know how that feeling is. There's, you know, about the last two and a half months, you're just yeah. in countdown mode, so I can totally relate to that. 
And it's weird too because when you're teaching, you know, people make fun of you like, you get off at 3 o'clock every day. You only work nine months out of the year. And people just don't realize that that time in the classroom with, you know, 20, 30 kids who are off the rocker sometimes, it does wear you down. And you do need that, that summer to, to recharge and so on and so forth. And we've both been mm-hmm. there and done that. There's also all the hours after school and getting, you know, coaching, planning, and all that stuff. So yeah, people don't people don't get that. But coaching, planning, I, I don't expect it's sure. ever gonna. I don't think that's ever gonna change. There's always gonna be people complaining. The teachers get the summers off, but well, and it is, but it is the name of the game. I think I heard it. <laughs> so I think I did, anyways. So getting into the actual football, though. How do you evaluate the 2018 Seahawks? Do they do enough to make you feel confident about their immediate future? Oh, they do. I, I think last year, everybody was expecting the Seahawks were going to be probably a seven or eight win outfit. There were people picking them to win four or five games, which I thought was ridiculous because as long as Russell Wilson's under center, I think your team's going to be around 500. But there were people who thought with all the defections they had, losing Richard Sherman, no more Cam Chancellor. Then Earl Thomas gets hurt early in the season. So I think a lot of people anticipated this team was not going to be hanging around in the playoff race. And yet, Middle of the season, they were very competitive against other teams that were Super Bowl contenders, had chances to win those games, had a chance to win both games against the Rams, and just didn't get the job done. And then late in the season, got really red hot, get into the playoffs, and unfortunately, uh, their run-heavy offense ended up dooming them in the playoffs because the Cowboys were able to stop that running game, and they did not make adjustments quick enough. By the time they did, a little bit too late, and they weren't able to win a game that, honestly, going back and watching the tape, they should have won. That they were the better football team, but the game planning ended up killing them. So when you mentioned the running game, and well, let's let's be a little bit honest. At times, despite the numbers from you know Russell Wilson, this was a heavy, heavy run base offense. And the thing with Seattle has been for a long time: the receivers have never been what we would hope they would be if you're a passing guy. Now they lose Doug Baldwin. How much did Doug Baldwin's retirement hurt the Seahawks? Oh, it's a big deal because you're not only talking about a guy that's been one of the best slot receivers in the NFL pretty much since he came into the league. I mean, he was an immediate impact player for this team. As an undrafted free agent, he came in and led their team in receiving yards and receptions, and he was catching passes that year from Tavares Jackson. He's been a rock-solid leader on the field, in the locker room, uh, plays with incredible passion, one of the most instinctive players you're ever going to see, and one of the best route runners that I've ever watched on film. So obviously it's a big loss, but the Seahawks are in a position now where they've been planning for this. They knew there was a good chance Doug Baldwin was going to be done going into the draft, and so they were able to use several draft picks on receivers. They were able to get DK Metcalf, who's obviously not the same style receiver as Doug Baldwin, but he's the type of weapon in Seattle's offense. They love the vertical throw downfield. They love to run the ball and then beat you with explosive pass plays. DK Metcalf is going to be able to do that with his incredible size and speed combination really soft hands too already looks like he's a better route runner than he was able to show at Ole Miss seems like it was more scheme than player so they've got him Gary Jennings out of West Virginia is a pretty solid route runner as well he's played some slot he's played on the outside and then the kid they drafted in the seventh round I'm really intrigued by John Ursua out of Hawaii 
He is a smaller slot receiver. Over 90% of his reps last year for Hawaii were out of the slot, and he's a really precise route runner. He's had some issues with drops, but he still put up huge numbers for Hawaii. So he's a player that I'm keeping a very close eye on, getting an opportunity to potentially replace Baldwin at that slot spot. So continuing about the receivers and the passing game, how do you evaluate the Seahawks passing game entering 2019 after a dominant year running the ball? I think they're going to throw the ball a little bit more this year. They're never going to get away from being a run-heavy team because that's Pete Carroll's philosophy. And you look at the talent they've got right now. Chris Carson and Rashad Penny are both going to be returning. I really like this running back they drafted out of Miami, too, in the sixth round. This Travis Homers, it looks to me like he's going to be a pretty solid addition to that backfield. So they've got a lot of talent back there. Their offensive line has been, they've signed guys and developed guys to be road graders in the run game. So they're not going to get away with that or away from that but i think that they're going to throw the ball a little bit more this season especially with the fact they drafted so many receivers this year i think they're going to look to get metcalf involved early tyler lockett's going to try to build off his career year there's plenty of people screaming there could be some regression from him but he really came into his own last season and and seems like he's really just entering the prime of his career so you've got two dynamic downfield threats there you've got jennings david moore flashed in the middle of the season then he kind of hit a roadblock second half of the season but I mean there's a lot of talent in that receiving core even without Doug Baldwin being there it's obviously a big loss that's going to be tough for them to overcome but they got plenty of talent there and I think they're going to lean a little bit more on that play action passing game to take advantage of the fact that they have such a good running game I expected that they're still going to be balanced but I'm anticipating they're not going to run the ball 52 percent of the time like they did last year that's unheard of in today's NFL so backing up to the draft you've already kind of covered a little bit the Seahawks raised a lot of eyebrows again this year with their draft class. And the last year was kind of, no one saw that draft class coming. No one did, except for, of course, the Seahawks. How do you evaluate this draft class and the decisions they made with it? Well, it's always tough to make grades for a draft class. You know, obviously, we haven't seen these guys play in a game. So it's kind of a, a futile exercise trying to grade a class. But, of course, I did because it's fun. But looking at the group they had, uh, there's three things that stand out. They got guys that are going to be versatile. They, they love the versatility aspect. Almost every player they drafted has played multiple positions, or they at least have played special teams, which is a, sec- a second big thing that stood out to me. A lot of these guys were special teams contributors, so they had versatility, They had special teams capability and then to overall toughness. A number of these guys are just really tough and they're instinctive players. So those are the things that stood out. When I look at the class, I was a little surprised with how they handled things in the first round because they had an opportunity to get Montez Sweat, who fell to them at number 21. But obviously there was the red flag with his heart condition. So maybe that played a role in Seattle's decision. They decided to trade down and recoup picks. And and John Schneider did a masterful job with that this year. He turned four selections before they traded Frank Clark into 11 total picks. A a phenomenal change of fortunes for them as far as bringing in more players. But I think LJ Collier, their first round pick, they selected with 29th overall. He is a player that I looked at as probably a second round caliber player, but he went in the first because look at how many defensive linemen went off the board. It was a historic number. I think it was 13 uh, defensive linemen in the first round that went off. And so John Schneider was thinking, we need to pick our guy now. We're not going to get him. Even if we only trade down a few more spots, he's probably not going to be there. So that was a good value pick for them based on the way that those players were coming off the board. 
And then they were able to get a safety, Marquise Blair, that really fits their identity. He's a hard hitter. He loves to smack people, can play both free and strong safety. So he's another player they really like. And obviously DK Metcalf, I think I had an early second, mid-second round grade. I was skeptical a little bit about the way that uh, he ran routes at Ole Miss, but again, I've gone back and looked at the film more, and it seems like maybe that wasn't as much his route running ability as just the scheme. It seemed Ole Miss was running only select few routes with their receivers, and so that may have held him back. He also had some injury issues, so I think trading back into the late second to get a dynamic freak athlete that can catch the football like Metcalf, hard worker, I think that's a really good value pick for them. And the rest of the picks, a few others that stood out to me, I really liked getting Ben Burr-Curvin in the fifth round, Washington linebacker, led the nation in tackles last year. He fell to the fifth round because he's kind of tiny. He's six foot, 230 pounds. There's concerns about being able to add much mass to that body of his, but the guy's a tackling machine. He knows how to find the football, really good special teams player. So that's a pick that I really liked that they made. And of course, I mentioned the name earlier, Travis Homer running back out of Miami. They needed somebody to replace Mike Davis in their backfield three-headed monster. And I think Homer can be that guy. He's an explosive runner, runs tough between the tackles tackles and i think he's got third down back capabilities he's got soft hands and i think he might be the best pass protecting running back in this draft class let me back up a little bit the dk metcalf there were i know you have graded second round early second round right That's yeah early to mid second and my okay. biggest concern with him was the route running aspect so you're one of the few who had him there a lot of folks had him first round prospect just based alone on his, on his combine and so we were all shocked to see him fall that low. Was it really only his route run that got him to drop that far, or what else was a problem with him? I think a few teams were really scared off, but I know he had an amazing combine, but his short shuttle and three-cone times were not good. So I think a lot of teams looked at that as, man, this guy can't move quickness-wise, agility-wise. He's going to really struggle, and that impacts your overall ability to the next level. But he's proven on the practice field already that those numbers don't translate. I mean, watching the way he was moving through drills and stuff, this guy's got his feet were on fire extremely quick in and out of his break. So you wouldn't even know that he performed poorly in those two drills. So I think that's something that scared teams away. And I also think his injury history, you have to remember two of the three years he played for the Rebels, he missed significant time. Last year he had a neck injury, and then his first year on campus he had a toe injury that cost him several games. So uh, he's had some issues staying healthy, and I think teams were scared off by that, the route running, and a few of the times of the combine. And I think some teams really do try not to get too caught up on what guys do at the combine in general we've seen plenty of combine warriors that come into the nfl and they're not great football players and all that coming together now you still have free agency what do you make of the seahawks free agency moves and what were the best and worst decisions well, I think the Seahawks have done exactly what they needed to do because uh, last year they had so many holes they had to fill with getting rid of players. And so they had to sign a bunch of free agents. They didn't end up with any compensatory picks, which I know John Schneider regrets that now. <laughs> but it was just the way the roster was set. They needed to get some players in. They were worried they weren't going to be able to get some of those guys if they waited. This year, they were able to go out and add a couple pieces that 
were released by t- other teams, so they didn't count against the compensatory formula. Players like Cassius Marsh, who the Seahawks actually drafted, he had a really good season with the 49ers last year, so they brought him back, and they were able to bring him in. The only free agents they brought in that counted against the formula were Jason Myers, who, uh, ironically, they cut last year in favor of Sebastian Janikowski. Myers had a better season in New York, so that move was the wrong decision, and they're trying to make up for it by bringing him back. And they signed Mike Upati, who previously played for for the 49ers and the Cardinals. He's been an all-pro in the past. He's had some injuries in recent seasons, so they were able to get a pretty good deal for one year on him. If he's healthy, probably an upgrade over J.R. Sweezy. So I like those moves. They obviously lost, they obviously lost a lot of players. Justin Coleman, Earl Thomas are gone, but they were able to keep D.J. Fluker, one of the rocks their offensive line. They were able to bring back K.J. Wright at a good price, so they are able to put him and Bobby Wagner back together, along with possibly having Michael Kendricks Uh, depending if he's available uh, with his uh, criminal charges that are still pending. Uh, But their linebacking corpse looks pretty good right now. So you look at what they just did recently, waiting till the comp pick deadline uh, passed earlier this week. Then they go out and they get the prize of their free agent hall, which was Ezekiel Anza. I know he's coming off shoulder surgery, but if he's healthy, this guy is one of the most productive pass rushers in football. So he can largely help make up for that departure of Frank Clark. Where do the Seahawks rank right now in the NFC West, and how many wins do you see in their schedule? Right now, I see them finishing second. I think that they're probably about where they were at last season as far as wins go. I think this is probably a 9-10-11 win outfit. Now, if their defense, if their pass rush ends up being better than anticipated, if Anza comes in and he's healthy and he gets 10-11-12 sacks, which he's very capable of doing. We just don't know what he's going to be looking like coming off this uh, surgery. But if he comes in and he produces and they get some contributions from other players, maybe Jacob Martin, who's going to be a second-year defensive end out of Temple for them. He had three sacks the last seven games last year. If he picks up some of the slack lost by Clark leaving and Cassius Marsh gives him some decent numbers uh, rushing off the edge and they're able to get some uh, pressure from the interior, Jaron Reed, I don't know if he can duplicate ten and a half sacks like last year, but if he can come close to that, that's really going to help this football team. I think that's still the biggest question mark. Are they going to be able to put enough pressure on the opposing quarterbacks? The young secondary is going to be a year older. I think they're going to be better. The linebackers among the best group in football at that position. It's just going to come down to the pass rush. And I think the offense, even though they lost Doug Baldwin, they're going to have their running game to lean on still. And I really like the group of receivers that they have. And I think this draft class is really going to help at that position as well. So I think that this is going to be a really tough division. I could see them finishing third if the 49ers put everything together. But right now on paper, I think the Seahawks have the better quarterback. I think their defense is more well rounded they've got a better running game so i would still put seattle ahead of them and i think they're right on the doorstep of the rams this season it's going to be a really tightly contested division even the cardinals could be exciting i don't know how many games they're going to win but uh, they were able to add some pieces in cliff kingsbury's offense that are going to be pretty fun to watch yeah, i still have my doubts about kingsbury Yeah, I I doubt the coach, but they did get some pieces there, though, for the offense they've got. So we'll see. At least I think they'll be entertaining. I don't know if they'll win many games, but uh, they'll be more entertaining than last year. That was one of the worst coaching jobs I've seen. Well, I'll also look at what you're saying, closing the gap. I think the Seahawks are closing the gap on the Rams. I think we started to see that late in the year. The Rams have some key members of the nucleus that are getting older, and if they're young guys – don't step up, all of a sudden it's a different division. So we'll wait and see, but 
I look. At I think this. it really comes down to youth movements with these teams because mm-hmm. obviously we know the Rams have a lot of talent, but Seattle last year it was supposed to be a rebuilding year for them, so uh, they're obviously going to have much higher expectations this year. Some people might not because they lost Frank Clark, but this is a team that didn't have Earl Thomas most of last year anyway. They were without Chancellor all year. Doug Baldwin was playing injured for a good portion of the season. Yes, he got it out and still put up decent numbers, but they were able to get to the playoffs despite all of that, and they were able to have a pretty nice haul in this draft. They got a couple nice free agent additions. Russell Wilson's now under contract through 2023, so they've got to be feeling pretty good about where they stand right now in the NFC West, even though the division, I think, is one of the better ones in football. It's going to be fun to watch. I agree. I agree. I think it's going to be a very close one. I think for the Rams side, the key thing is going to be that interior offensive line where we have a new center and a new guard with Saffold being gone. And if those guys aren't ready, it could actually turn into a nightmare of a year. So, there Yeah, you go. I think that's the biggest question mark I probably have for the Rams right now is that interior offensive line. And, and at some point, Whitworth is going to start showing his age. But maybe it won't be this year. But I, I do think that they're... Their window might, you know, obviously Goff's going to be asking for a new contract soon, so they're going to have to deal with some of the things that the Seahawks have already had to deal with once they had been to the playoffs several years in a row. So it, it's an uphill battle, and Seahawks fans obviously can relate to that, but uh, the division is not going to get any easier moving forward. No, it's not. And the 49ers, too, are making some moves. The 49ers, I think, defensively are built specifically to beat the Rams, the way that they would add that pass rush. So... The, the Niners, it's, that's three teams right there that, to me, are legitimate powers, playoff contenders. Right I now, think the biggest thing for the 49ers is what are you going to get from Jimmy Garoppolo? That, that, to me, is the difference maker for them. And are they going to be able to find a corner to go with Richard Sherman? That was a big problem for them last year, too, is that their secondary got picked on quite a bit. And it wasn't Sherman's fault. He's still very good. But they had some holes back there. They add another really good pass rusher up front, and they've added some pieces on offense and free agency. They were able to go out and get a couple linebackers. D Ford's going to be an interesting addition for them and their pass rush. So I mean, they've got a bunch of guys that can get after the quarterback. So uh, I, I'm with you. I think the 49ers are a team to look out for. I think they're going to be in the thick of things. But I would still say Seattle and the Rams both have superior overall rosters, but what's on paper doesn't always translate in this league. Yeah, we saw that last year as well. All right, man, where can people find you? Now, you can find our website, SeahawkMaven.io. All of our uh, contents on there, articles, podcasts. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at SeahawkMaven or follow me at Corbin Smith NFL. All right. Corbin, as always, great to talk to you. We'll be talking again come regular season, I'm sure. And, well, looking forward to renewing the rivalry. Absolutely. This should be a phenomenal season, the NFC West. As we mentioned, the teams are going to be really, really good. Even the worst team, I think, at least will be exciting. Again, I don't know how many games the Cardinals will actually win, but I think they'll be more competitive than they were last year, and there will be more compelling storylines. So I'm sure when the Seahawks and Rams play two primetime games scheduled for now, uh, that's, <laughs> the NFL is really trying to sell this rivalry like they did at one time, the 49ers and Seahawks. It's now the Seahawks and the Rams. So two primetime games. going to be really exciting to see both those play out this year. Well, Corbin, you're absolutely right. I can't wait for it. Looking forward to another chat on the show, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care now. 
All right, good interview there with Corbin. Always is well-spoken, always knows what he's talking about. So there you go. Also, before we move on, reach out to us at Rams Talk 1945. Leave us a voicemail at 657-666-5453 if you're interested in sponsoring us. We need to keep the lights on, quite frankly. this is, <laughs> It's not cheap, okay? So if you're interested in working with us or advertising, our numbers are really solid even in the offseason. They're doing really well. We have a media kit ready to get out to you. So again, give us a call at 657-666-5453, leave a voicemail, or reach out to us at ramstop1945 at gmail.com. Also, if you are a baseball fan, Talking Halos has kicked off. We've had a number of great interviews, If that is if you're an Angels fan, okay? We're still working on the Dodgers podcast. We haven't given up on it, but we want to find the right people and the right personalities because you know in L.A., in that market for the Dodgers, we want to make sure we put on the, get the right people in place, give you a great podcast. The competition is pretty, pretty steep, okay? All right, another news just coming up today. Uh, well, there's another cup on the Rams. That's right. Cooper Cup's younger brother, Kenter, Kentner, is now a Los Angeles Ram. He's a bit of a tiny guy, six foot, about 225, small linebacker. He did, in college, have a 150 career tackle, 2.5 sacks in 33 games. Was a co-captain, according to the Rams Wire. Um, I don't really think too much of it. I think it's an opportunity because, well, that's Cooper's brother. Why not give him a shot? He maybe, just maybe, they will... Find a place for him on the practice squad. We'll we'll find out. We'll find out. But I'm not really thinking this will go very far. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they see something in him that I don't see. I mean, not many people have seen it much about him being from Eastern Washington. But hey, congratulations, Kempner and um, Kentner, and I hope you enjoy your time here. Also, this is an interesting thing that Les Neen said uh, just a few days ago here that Daryl Henderson gives the Rams. The Kamara quote unquote element at running back. I wonder about that, folks. And I'm not going to go too deep into it because I really just want to let that one breathe. But hey, send us some feedback at Rams1945. Do you believe that the Rams have their Kamara element in Daryl Henderson? Tell us why. And if, you know, if it's a well thought out answer, we'll read it on in your next episode. Finally, before we go, just want to also remind just. Jared Goff, keep this in mind. Pro Football Focus has him as a top 25 player, under 25. I want to get really into this, but we're out of time tonight. Check it out. I, I've seen a couple articles. Gabe Cam this over at Ramswire has an article out about it. A couple other places as well. Check it out and see what you think. Is Jared Goff one of the PFF top 25 players, under 25? I happen to believe he is. I'm higher on him than many people are. We'll see. Um, but, hey. I want your thoughts again. Send us some feedback. We really have not been hearing too much from fans in the offseason. Let's hear more from you. Rams1945. Or hey, hit us up on Twitter at TalkRams. Okay, it is time for me to go. It's time for me to say goodbye for the evening. However, make sure you check us out on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud. All those places. Of course, iBeatRadio.com plays our shows as well. We love to hear from you. Email us at RamsTalk1945 gmail.com on Twitter, TalkRams. You can find me on Twitter at DCApollo. And, well, don't forget the rest of our staff, including Michael Stewart at 1223, Steve Ribeiro at Steve Ribeiro, and, of course, Johnny Gomez and the only Rams on Center guys. Great guys. Interesting guys, to say the least. Check them out. All right. So, for the entire Rams Talk staff, this is Derek C. Paul saying good night. Have a great one. And we'll talk this weekend.
can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Recruiters, reduce your cost per candidate by about 50% with CareerBuilder. We connect you to qualified, diverse candidates at every stage of the hiring funnel. CareerBuilder Talent Acquisition Suite. Software packed with talent. Visit hiring.careerbuilder.com forward slash recruit. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.